Hey everyone, it's Jeff from MCS Mag, and I know there's going to be a big, giant sigh of relief after this week's special podcast, because I've been getting a bazillion requests for this topic since we first launched our magazine. Now I'm talking about survival strategies for seniors. My only regret is that it took me so long to get around to focusing on it. Well, it's finally here, and for our senior listeners, you're in for a real treat. But even if you're not a senior, don't make the mistake of skipping over it, because there's some real nuggets of gold in here for everyone in this special broadcast. You'll see what I mean in just a minute, so let's go ahead and jump right in. If bullets were flying, your adrenaline surging, would you hit your target? If the world as you know it crumbled tomorrow, collapsed into chaos, would you know how to survive? If you and those you loved were cornered by a gang, violently attacked, could you protect them? Could you protect them? Could you protect them? Tactical firearms training, urban survival, close quarters combat. This, this is another podcast to help you better prepare for any threat you may face in your role as a protector and a patriot. This is Modern Combat and Survival. Almost everyone listening to the sound of my voice right now understands the need to prepare for disasters, emergencies, and even civil unrest. You know you need a bug out bag. You know that you need a survival plan. You know you need to stockpile supplies. And you know you need to train yourself and arm yourself to defend against looters and other predators who might come out of the woodwork during a collapse scenario. Now, there's an abundance of material available on the market right now that's going to teach you and train you how to do these things. Unfortunately, pretty much all of these programs have one thing in common. They're all written for people who are able-bodied adults. Now, that's fine for the majority of preppers out there, but if you're, let's just call it getting up there in age, what then? You know, what if you have serious health problems or disabilities? What if you understand the need to protect yourself and your family from a disaster collapse, but you're also well past the point of joining AARP and getting discounts at restaurants and drugstores? Look, Old age is the one thing that we obviously all hope to have in common one day. I mean, it comes to us all. And when it does, simply giving up and trusting your safety to your younger relatives may not be an option. Perhaps even your own children who may live far away when a disaster strikes. So how does a senior citizen or someone with serious health problems or mobility limitations tackle the problem of prepping? That's exactly what we're here to find out. Hello, everyone. This is Jeff Anderson, editor for Modern Combat and Survival Magazine, with another podcast to help you better prepare in your role as a protector and a patriot. And here today, today to discuss survival strategies for seniors, we welcome back Tony Nestor. Tony, thanks for joining us today, man. Hey, Jeff. Thank you for having me on your show. I really like being here. Thanks. Yeah, no, this, is, I'm, this has been a topic that we've been getting a lot of call for, so I'm looking forward to this. It's going to be great. Now, listen, everybody, if you haven't heard the other interviews that we've done with Tony or seen, seen his stuff before, he has over 20 years of experience teaching outdoor survival and guiding wilderness trips through his organization, Ancient Pathways. And he's instructed desert survival courses for the National Transportation and Safety Board, National Weather Service, and even U.S. military special operations units, and, of course, for private citizens. In addition, he has extensive experience working with the media and film industry and has provided survival training for actors to prepare for such movies as Jonah Hex and Into the Wild, along with working with Andrew Zimmern, the host of the Travel Channel's Bizarre Foods, believe it or not. Now, Tony's been featured in numerous media outlets, including on NBC News, 
the Travel Channel, Maxim Magazine, the New York Times, and the Discovery Channel, and he's the author of numerous books on survival and writes a popular monthly column for Outdoor Magazine. Now, you can learn more about Tony and his work at www.apathways.com. Tony, I think this is probably one of the, the most common questions that we get from people is like, you know, they, they, they've read our books, they read our articles, they read our blog and everything, but it's like, but that doesn't apply to me because I'm older or because I can't move around and things like that. And I totally get that. So let, let's start with the issue of bugging out because it's one of those areas of preparedness that we talk about may be a forced decision for you. But for a lot of our readers who are seniors, they see it as a near impossibility because we often talk about how you may you know, you may have to be prepared to leave on foot and even travel long distances without a vehicle if the highways are all clogged up because everybody else obviously in town is going to be trying to get out of Dodge at the same time that you are. So given the physical demands of bugging out, what are what are maybe the key ways in which your bug out plan must change when sim- simply throwing a bug out bag on your shoulder and walking out isn't an option? I mean, how do you how do you account for things like wheelchairs, walkers, canes and other mobility issues? Well, Jeff, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, you're not looking at the Jack Bauer scenario where you've got somebody in their 20s with a shoulder bag on unlimited gear running through the streets. Um, that's kind of a scenario that shows up a lot in the forums. And, and in reality, it's going to be a situation where you're you're getting out with other family members, or you know, you're um, having to uh, take some other things into account uh, with your disability. So, I like to tell people first of all, start with your community. Um, this is more than likely not going to be a lone wolf scenario. All the people I've talked to over the years who've been in disasters and all the federal response agencies I've worked with, everybody says, you know, the thing that, that um, a good disaster management plan starts with is, is getting your community involved, your people, your tribe, your friends, whoever it is, even if it's just one or two other people in your neighborhood or your apartment or, or wherever, starting there. So you've got some other people looking out for you and you're looking out for them. That's going to help tremendously. Second thing is you got to modify your plan accordingly with your disability. So, for instance, a friend of mine is a retired survival instructor, and for years he had the big bug out bag and all this stuff ready to go, ready to hoof it out on foot if necessary. And then he ended up having a whole bunch of surgeries on his lower back. Just guy who jumped out of too many planes in the military over the years, veteran, and, and lots of uh, lots of disability issues. So he said, "Look, you know, I've had to change my entire plan, and now." My bug-out bag consists of one of the carry-on luggage, the, the roll-on luggage like you see for stowing above your air, your um, seat, seat in the airline. And his whole kit revolves around that because he frankly can't carry a lot of weight on his back now because of that disability. So he's modified that. He's modified his egress plan out of his house, out of his neighborhood, knowing that he's going to need a little more time and so on. So the, I think these things are fluid. They, they change as time goes by. I know... When I was younger, I was into the big backpacks and so on, and now with a recurring neck injury, I've had to modify that myself. So you must come up with a solution for this year, and then you reevaluate it next year. But I would say first is just allowing more time to get out of your area. Second is having some people that you can turn to, uh, some like-minded friends, family, even if it's just one or two people, and then your gear so that you're not carrying the big 80-pound rucksack with all the tactical stuff. That has its place, but maybe you just need a roll-on uh, luggage device. Maybe you need something that you can grab and fling across uh, your wheelchair or something like that when you're rolling out of your house, uh, something a little more portable. So you can a 
horrified as time goes by. Yeah, you know the uh I'm getting ready to actually get on a plane tomorrow and and my luggage I hate I actually hate these like wheeled things like maybe I'm just buying the wrong ones I don't know I know that they charge a bazillion dollars for luggage but you know even going through the airport those things wobble around on me and everything I can imagine like in a in a bug out scenario especially if you've got to go over any sort of terrain whatsoever that could get even harder but something I was thinking about because I'd never thought of that before like I've always been a big you know I'm a military guy so the backpack guy. But I was thinking, you know, what it, you know, I wonder if there's like, I was thinking of like, what's the off-road version of the wheeled luggage? And I almost think like, um, like the golf, like the, um, you know, the things for carrying around your golf clubs. You know, it's got the big wheels on it and stuff like that. Like, I wonder if something like that could be used to carry gear around that would make it easier, maybe, for somebody that if yeah, you do have to go over yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the 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 heavier duty items, like you're talking about. Yeah. So the the hockey duffel bags for instance or the um north face makes one in particular um that's a rolling duffel bag with wheels that has a wide base so you're not going to get into those uh stability issues like you're talking about with the airport luggage i know they're redesigning the airport luggage right now actually because of different standards and some of them are a little wider at the base a little more stable mm. um but yeah some of the the uh, the sports duffel bags that are out there the big ones designed for hockey and football gear they have the wheels on them those are good and very durable and then the um the um golf cart the uh, golf uh, bags like you mentioned yeah yeah well, here, here's the thing. I mean, we all know prepping can get really expensive. I mean, there's there's no shortage of gear out there, and there's even less shortage of all the stuff that I would I would love to have as a survivalist. And there's always new stuff coming out, especially now where survival's really you know it's it's been a trend now for a while. But a lot of this gear might be useful, but someone could go broke just trying to stockpile all of the extra like food for survival and, and things like that. And no matter how useful this stuff might be, we get a lot of um, a lot of comments from senior citizens who say, you know, I'm on a fixed income, and right. I don't I don't have the I don't have the ability to pay for all of this really expensive gear that's out there and everything. So, what what tips can you offer for prepping on a budget, especially for older citizens? Right. So the the thing that I start with when I'm teaching urban survival classes, the thing we look at first is your calorie intake. So let's let's talk about that. You know, you need roughly to account for about 2,000 calories a day per person. So if that's my my need, I'm going to start working in a one to three day time frame and building up from there. There are certainly lists out there that say, oh, you need to have 30 days supply or six months or two years even. That's great if you have the space and the budget certainly. But what if you just what if you don't? What if you just have enough for a few days maybe? So let's start with 2,000 calories a day and then break it down from there. And kind of the three areas to prepare for uh, in terms of food prep is having canned goods, some dried goods, and then some dehydrated or freeze-dried packages. And frankly, I'm not a real fan of the, the a lot of the freeze-dried packages out there just because they have really a really high sodium content, 50 to 60% sodium content with some of those freeze-dried meals. Now, that being said, I carry some in my truck. I carry some in my three-day bug-out kit. But for the home, that's not something I really want to rely on much. I'll, I'll use more of the dehydrated, which doesn't have all that sodium added. The dried goods, you know, your typical rice, lentils, oats, wheat, um, flour, and so on, uh, try building up a little more extra stock there in terms of having an extra container of flour on here, extra sugar on here. 
you that, that you want in your diet. And then the canned goods, uh, that can be so many different options there with your canned beans and soups and, and stews and so on. So build up every time you go to the store, just try adding in one or two more cans. So wow, I, I just, I, I normally go through a couple cans of beans. So I'm going to get two more cans of beans this time when I go to the grocery store and add that in. Now I've just taken care of one more meal. I'm going to do this the next time I go. I mean, it accrues over time so that you're not trying to get everything laid in in one shopping cart visit to the grocery store. You're just trying to build up slowly, getting in an extra day here, an extra day there, depending on how your budget allows for that. But when you're trying to get in, excuse me, some extra canned goods and items every time you go, so that you've got an extra one to three days built in. I was working, uh, teaching a class back east, urban survival class back east, and I had a, a lady in the class who said, you know, I'm, I'm a struggling grad student. I don't have a lot of money. I don't have the space, and I'm working two jobs as it is. I, I can't do this seven to 30-day thing you're talking about and others are talking about. And I said, you know, let's just look at your unique situation here. So everybody's got a unique situation. So... Let's look at what space you have available, your budget, and go from there. And we broke it down. Here's what you need, 2,000 calories a day. So we went over what she normally ate. And that's, that's something I recommend, too. Sit down, get a sheet of paper out, and say, here's what I eat for breakfast, what I eat for lunch, snacks, and dinner. And be very specific. So don't just say I eat oatmeal, but I eat a half a cup of oatmeal with some bananas every day and then a cup of coffee and a teaspoon of sugar be very specific break it down so that when you go to the grocery store next time you're armed with a little more information on ter- in terms of quantity okay i need to get x amount of oatmeal built up or peanut butter or crackers whatever it is so that um, you, you can slowly accrue that and build that up over time and that's what we do with her and she contacted me a few weeks later and said you know i'm I feel a lot better now. I, I still don't have a lot of space, but I certainly don't have the funds, but I've got enough right now to get through three days. And my roommates are now working with me on this too, and, and we're going to build this up even more. But I, I was just able to handle three days. So, again, take into account the 2,000 calories a day per person. Use the template to start, and then build on those three areas, the canned goods, the dried goods, and then the dehydrated. And dehydrated is simple stuff you to um, your, your jerky and and uh, or even if you have a, a home dehydrator, I have an Excalibur dehydrator, real small one I got from Cabela's, and I use that for drying a lot of my food here and also prior to heading out on trips. And that's just an outstanding tool to add into your your um, home self-reliance kit as well if you have the means. Hmm. Yeah, and you know that makes sense. Like um. You know, you always have to look at those things like you've got space, you've got, um, you know, what kind of foods are going to be the most nutritious for different things. And, you know, if somebody does have to leave, like you said, I mean, if you have a, a variety of different things. So if you do have some dehydrated foods and and the other ones like like the dehydrated that are high, even high sodium, you know, those types of things, if you're probably an able-bodied person and you're walking a lot, like you are actually bugging out, they're going to be, they're not going to weigh as much. You can keep those. The salt might actually be able to help replenish the electrolytes and things like that. But for an older person who maybe is very susceptible to, you know, sodium or, you know, um, cholesterol, things like that, that could be something that they really need to look at and what's in those things. Yeah, that's the problem with a lot of the um, bug out type food. So your, your MREs and your, um, or your freeze dried meals are very high in sodium and other additives. 
I know in courses we've done with the military where we're living off that stuff for a couple of days, 48 hours is about my personal limit for living off synthetic food like that. Even even the bodybuilder meal replacement type bars, he sold, he sold at GNC. Those can be good in a bug out kit. I, I've got that stuff. Tastes great. It's good for a day or two. But after the second day, my stomach's churning, churning like a cement mixer. I need a carrot or a banana or a hamburger. I need some real food in me yeah. because that stuff's designed for short-term uh, supplementation of your diet. And yeah. so, you know, again, some people love MREs. I know guys that live off those on missions for 36, oh 90 God. days. But <laughs> it can wreak havoc on your system. Oh, yeah. And uh, and so that's more, more – I view that as – your home pantry, which is your home pantry is going to be just expanding on what you normally eat, and and the idea there is to deviate too much from your normal diet. A survival situation is going to be stressful enough with all these things you've got to contend with, and you don't want to radically change your diet to some esoteric survival food um, to have you try and get through that ordeal. Just stick with your normal diet, but build in those two thousand extra calories a day, um, and or building in calories, uh, a lot for that. And, uh, you should be able to take care of your, cover your bases there. Yeah. Okay. We've been talking with Tony Nestor of apathways.com about survival strategies for seniors. And we have a lot more to get to, including self-defense tactics against looters and opportunists who may target the elderly when law enforcement is weak. The items that seniors need to stockpile now that could likely mean the difference between life or death after a disaster, especially when support systems they rely on collapse. And the one member of the family who could make evacuating not only difficult, but beg you to stay with a look that could melt your heart and place you in the path of destruction. But first, check out this special message. In any disaster, crisis, or attack, your life and the life of those you love could solely rest on the survival gear you've acquired. Do you have the proper gear to protect you from the threats you'll face? Whether it's preparing your home against the destruction and mayhem of a city in chaos, or you're bugging out to a safer location when a natural disaster forces you from your home, the supplies you have right now could ensure your survival or seal your fate. Don't take the risk. Claim your free copy of our exclusive guide, Survival Gear Secrets, at survivalgearsecrets.com and discover the seven-phase survival gear plan every family must prepare for or face the consequences. Five no-bullshit warning signs that a collapse is headed your way, so you're already in action long before your neighbors even know what hit them. And how to know exactly when it's safer to stay at home and shelter in place. Or get in the family bug out mobile and get the hell out of Dodge. Your fellow citizens may be fine with sleeping in a crowded stadium waiting for FEMA to hand them a granola bar, juice box, and a blankie. But you know that no one can protect your family better than you can. If you're properly prepared with the right supplies and equipment to ensure your survival. Don't wait until it's too late. Find out what's missing from your survival gear plan by grabbing your free copy of Survival Gear Secrets now at www.survivalgearsecrets.com. And now, back to our show. Okay, we're back with Tony Nestor of apathways.com talking about survival strategies for seniors. And there's a lot more great topics that we need to cover that I know are going to really help our readers. So let's go ahead and jump right back in now. Now, Tony, we've seen time and time again that in an emergency, 
the worst can come out in people. I mean, some preppers and survivalists talk about the threat of zombies who, you know, like those people who haven't bothered to prepare at all and then find themselves in dire need when the balloon goes up and they're looking around for help. The threat of human predators like looters and even your own neighbors who may be desperate to survive and, and maybe have no supplies of their own it really should be a concern for people. I mean, I've seen this even in even in small towns. And I think that this is especially so for seniors and those with mobility issues, because older people are frequently seen as easier targets to prey on. I mean, they they know this. It's like, you you know, that when you're like going out shopping or you're at the restaurant, you're in the city, you're in a parking lot. I know that seniors get that sense of feeling like they they could be targeted more because they could be seen as an easier target. So what do you see as the best self-defense plan for training and preparation for senior citizens when they might be targeted by others and local law enforcement could be overwhelmed and unresponsive? Right, right. So, you know, yeah, local law enforcement first responders may not be able to get to you, so you're going to be on your own. And so what I tell people to do is start with the outside of your house, your apartment, your condo, whatever it is, and look for the weak spots. Where's somebody likely to hide? Statistically, most attacks, you talk to law enforcement personnel and, and nationwide, most attacks occur between the front door and your car or your car walking to the garage or, or the back door or whatever it is, so the, the driveway area. So harden those areas a little bit in terms of getting some quality lighting, and there there is solar-powered lighting you can get. I've got a few around our place because we live out in the sticks, and solar-powered lighting that isn't connected to the hardwire of your house so that the grid's down, that'll still function. And, and solar power technology has come so far in the last few years. Uh, you get some quality lighting that's not dependent on the grid. And, and down in price, well, too. I mean, yeah, yeah, down, very yeah. affordable. We're talking going to Lowe's or Home Depot, $40, $50 for a set of these, maybe less depending on the wattage, and, uh, and get a few of those. And then look for the weak spots around your home. Do you have a bunch of bushes, trash barrels, and so on where somebody could potentially wait um, and then look at the front of your house. So the we've had a few security personnel in our courses over the years, and I've kind of picked their brains and said, you know, what what are a couple things people can do to improve the front of their house and so on, their their doors and entryways. And you know, if you look at the door jam where the door meets the uh, glass there in the uh, in the studs, that area when a contractor puts in that catch to catch the front door latch. Normally, they use half-inch, maybe three-quarter-inch screws. And if you can remove those, drill those out, and put in three-inch long screws, that is going to fortify the front of your house tremendously. And most crimes, most of your smash-and-grab type crimes are crimes of opportunity. Somebody's coming by, they think you might have some stuff, or they know that you just walked out, and and they've got an hour to, to get in there. And most of the people who do the classic move, like you see in the movies, kicking in the front door, that's possible with those small screws being in your jam. But you fortify that with three-inch screws, and you just increase the strength tenfold right there. And that that takes mere minutes to do that. It's very low-tech, and that alone can help. That's just one thing. And then getting, you know, if you have the means, uh, maybe a steel security door, like they sell again at Home Depot, uh, that can can be a factor in contributing to the hardening of, of the front door and back door. Uh, and then they make these low-tech wedge alarms. Have you seen these? They're for travelers, and they're little wedge alarms. You put them under your door, and um, it's a 9-volt battery. If somebody pushes in the door or tries to gain entry, it goes off, and it emits a high, shrill sound. 
So I, I bring those with me when I travel, actually, and I have those in my hotel room, and they're all of $10. And a friend of mine who lives out in the country, he has a bunch of those set up, kind of spray-painted them, colored them different, you know, camo colors, and he has those around his uh, shed. Uh, he had some people coming around, uh, breaking into his shed, some kids from the area one time, and so he... Uh, buried those in the ground, and uh, that, that kind of solved the problem. Again, very low tech there. So we're talking visual security in terms of the lighting, we're talking some hardening of the, the security of your door, and then some audio security that's all very low tech and not connected to the grid. And then, of course, your interior, you know, having your tactical flashlight so you can light somebody up who is uh, maybe in your driveway or you're going to take the trash out and you just see some raccoons or something. You're walking with your light, and that can give you that visual advantage to start with. And then building up from there, you've got your firearm, you've gotten in the training, you've gotten in maybe some defensive tactics classes, how to use that and move through your house so you're not a liability to anybody in your house because you're untrained. So you've got your firearm or whatever it is for you. I know we had one individual in a class recently, and excuse me, and they were saying, you know, I'm, I live in New York and some of the country's most oppressive gun laws. And, and so he was saying, all I've been able to do is line my bedroom, my home, my um, cupboards in my kitchen with several cans of wasp spray. And there have been cases of people using wasp spray to defend themselves. I'm not recommending that over a Mossberg or a Glock. But, um, you know, if you live in a place where you have some... Um, some very restrictive gun laws or some issues that uh, the rest of us don't have to contend with, you might have to look into alternatives. So the bear spray, OC spray, wasp spray um, is, one, is certainly one option. Um, and then having a safe room, a place that you and your family have talked about that you're going to go to if there's uh, a breach in the front door or there's a home invasion. You've run through some drills. So, okay, we're going to go to the back bedroom, and here's what's going to happen once we're in there. You run through those drills. And then in that room, you've got your defensive items, some first aid items, trauma kit, and and your cell phone, flashlight, and so on. And a, a security room like that doesn't have to be like that uh, ridiculous twenty thousand uh, dollar vault, like in that Jodie Foster movie a few years ago. Uh, you know, this, this panic room, I think it was called. Yeah. And people hear about the panic room, it's like, oh, I don't have the money for that kind of thing. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be like that. So. What you did to your front door in terms of fortifying it, you want to do that to your bedroom door or maybe all your, all the rooms in your house, but at least start with one room where you've got that fortified and you've got the door jam strengthened with those three-inch screws. You've got a solid core door as opposed to a hollow core door. Most contractors put in hollow core doors, and it's really easy to kick through, bust through with an elbow, but you get a solid core wood door or steel door and put that in there. And then you have a lock on there, maybe a deadbolt, and you've got your supplies in there. And you've got an egress route out of there. So if you're in a second-story um, facility, building, apartment, um, house, whatever, then you've got one of the fold-out ladders that you can get out of the window if there's a fire or something along those lines. So I look at secure and, and self-defense is not just an issue of, you know, do I have firearms training? That's an awesome place to start, and I highly recommend that. But you should also have looked at the exterior of your house because, again, statistically, most attacks occur there. And then look at hardening the doors on your house, get some audio alarms, some 
visual security that isn't dependent on the grid, like the solar-powered lights, and then having your safe room. And so it's a layered approach. Again, two is one and one is none. That, that mindset that we've got these different contingency plans in place in case one one fails. Yeah. You know, I um, just a couple things that came to mind as you were talking about that. So I used to live in a, uh, like basically a gang-infested area of New Mexico, which is pretty much describes a lot of New Mexico. You're, you're near that area, so you probably know what I'm talking about. But we used to get, um, used to get tagged with graffiti a lot. Um, I used to have gang members just kind of like stop their car out in front of my house, and they would just decide that looked like a good place to party. And two of the things that really helped me out a lot were one was a million, you were talking about bringing, like making sure you have a light with you to light up areas. And what I found was that like those, those big one million candle power, like, um, those big lights, they're like, like have yeah. a pistol grip on them right, that, right. uh, they hated those things. Like if I went out in my backyard and I shine that thing on the, on the car and everything, of course I had a, I had my firearm with me just in case I decided to shoot at the light. But what I found right, right. was that never happened. They just, they realized, okay, this wasn't a cool place to party. They might, you know, flip me off or, you know, say a few choice words or whatever, but they always got in their car and they left and they always hated that. Um, I think there's maybe this feeling of defenselessness. Like if you're if you're spotlighted like that and nobody can see, they don't know whether you're armed or whatever. Especially if maybe they hear a shotgun pump in the background or whatever, you know that that really helped me out a lot of times. Um, the other thing that we found as when I was doing security consulting in that same area was um, we had some buildings that were getting a lot of um, deer coming up and things like that. Like they were they were taking care of landscaping. They were, they were basically mowing oh, yeah. it down. And so we installed, um, re, there were motion censored sprinklers, which mm. certainly got rid of the animals, but we also found out that it also got, it worked just as well with taggers. And so maybe, I mean, and you can get them nowadays, I think even like Home Depot and stuff like that for about 50 or $60 right. and some strategically planned things like that. I know it sounds stupid. Like how could a sprinkler stop a looter, but and and it's not like it's going to, you know, decapitate them with, you know, a water stream or anything. But the point is that people don't like to be inconvenienced. They don't like to, you know, they, 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 for some reason, they just don't like being spotlighted with a light or being wet, I guess. I don't know. But right, right. those are just a few other simple things that might help out with that, you know, like taking a look at your outside and seeing where your, your potential, you know, spots are where people could breach. Yeah. Yeah, and again, it can be real low tech, starting yeah. with that, and and going up with some of the off grid uh, security systems that don't cost too much. Yeah, yeah. You know, Tony, there's been I mean, list after list after list online and in books, and from survival and and, and prepping coaches that talk about the things that you need to stockpile in cash to survive short term and long term disasters. But most of these lists simply don't touch on the reality that so many Americans rely on and that is prescription medicines and most people only have about a 30 to 60 day supply of it on hand and most most probably have less than 30 days at any given time now stockpiling your life-saving prescription meds is one way to hedge those bets when there's an emergency but can you offer any advice on how to go about maybe you know taking care of that prescription med problem that people might have like and what other maybe special supplies or stockpiles that seniors in particular should be putting away for that? Yeah, you know, Jeff, I think it's a matter of, of that, that's one area where I think you just have to sit down and have a conversation 
with your family doctor and, and let them know what you're doing and what your thoughts are. I, I was at a uh, uh, wilderness medicine conference teaching last fall, and there were about 300 physicians there from around the world, uh, mostly the U.S. here and, and other, you know, ER personnel and paramedics and so on. And so during the course of that weekend, um, working with people, I would just do a little informal poll and say, you know, I'd ask them that very question and say, you know, with the, with the growth in self-reliance and probably paying more people are interested in having supplies on hand and how do you guys feel about prescription meds and working with patients. And, and I was really amazed and pleased because I'm not kidding. It was, it was nine out of 10 people were raising their hands. The docs were raising their hands and said, Oh yeah, I will totally work with my, my patients, my clients in that area. If they're reasonable with it and, and, um, you know, if, if they come to me and talk to me. So I, I've done that with my own doc, mostly because I need certain meds for the, the types of wilderness trips I guide. You know, I need EpiPens and and some broad-spectrum antibiotics, things like that. I need prescriptions for, um, especially if I'm traveling internationally to remote areas. And so I, I've gone in and just had that conversation with my doc and said, you know, I'd like to get a couple weeks' supply of this item or that item because I'm going to a remote area. And so I think you just need to, next time you're, you're at the doctor's office, just say, hey, I've been working on making my life and my home more self-reliant. I've been working on building up my water and food supplies. And the one area that I want to focus on next is my medical prescriptions. And, you know, could I talk to you about getting an extra week, two weeks, month, whatever it is of my heart medication, my diabetes medication, so I can have this on hand. And I, like I said, I'm really impressed with uh, the response I'm getting from both uh, people, doctors in my own courses and um, conferences and seminars I go to around the country where, where people say, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll certainly work with my clients on that. So start there. And then the other three um, key non-prescription meds that you want to have in place that you want to build into your first aid kit and, and stock up, because most most first aid kits, even if you get a quality wilderness first aid kit designed for remote medicine, those are the type I, I recommend to people. Um, even if you get one of those, they're awesome on the gauze and the stereostrips and the bandages. But um, they're, they're kind of weak on the meds. So my kit that I bought recently uh, or, or just upgraded recently to, it only had about six ibuprofen. <laughs> What's that going to do if I just wrench my back or or uh, somebody sprained an ankle? So. They're great on the gauze and everything else, but beef up the meds. And the three meds are something to deal with inflammation. So whatever works for you, your Aleve, your Ibuprofen, your Motrin, get an extra bottle of those 60 tablets, uh, buy the bigger ones. And then get some Benadryl. And in particular, the fast children's Benadryl is the best because that gets in your system within a minute or two compared to the 20 or 30 minutes of adult Benadryl. And thing I like about the children's Benadryl is it doesn't make me into a, a zombie where I'm, I can't, I'm not very coherent and all that. So get the fast melt. You can usually find that at, at the big box stores. And the third area is Imodium because in a true grit-down situation, you are looking at third-world conditions overnight, especially with hygiene. And if you may, you know, if, you, if you're on top of the hand-washing and using hand sanity, that's great, but somebody in your group might not be or somebody you just took in, you know, family member, friend, neighbor. And so hygiene is going to be a real problem, and connected with that could be some waterborne illnesses, diarrhea-related um, illnesses, and so on. So having some Imodium on hand is really key. So those those are the big three 
excuse me, those are the big three to to add in to your first aid kit at home. Get something to deal with inflammation, like ibuprofen, get some Fastenal Benadryl, get some Imodium, and then build up from there. Have the conversation with your family physician about beefing up some of the prescription meds. Yeah, and that's probably a tough topic to maybe for a lot of doctors. I mean, number one, you probably don't don't wear your aluminum foil hat to the doctor's office because I mean I know <laughs> it's that reason why that always seems to be the thin, the you know like oh why do you want an extra month of you know your heart medication or whatever it might be and you know the other thing I can think of is that because my my town in in Texas just was hit with uh, massive floods and. Oh, yeah. It was the worst in, in Texas history. And when I went to the relief center to help people out, um, there were a lot of elderly there and there were a lot of people there suffering. I mean, they were, they were forced out of their homes in the middle of the night and they didn't have their, their medications. You could see the results of that. And I wonder, you know, I would think even, even if you're in Nebraska, whatever, you could say, you tell your doctor, I had a friend in Texas that was just in the floods or, you know, they were in Oklahoma when that then that tornado hit, and their house was ruined unexpectedly. And I, they said that their biggest concern was that they didn't have their medication. So I would like to have an extra month that I can just put away, um, use it before expiration, but I can keep a rolling month there where if anything ever does happen, you know, I, I'm prepared. So I guess you could use somebody else's story also as a reason why rather than, I think the zombies right. are coming to chomp away at my face, and I need to have something for my bug out bag. Um, right, right. Yeah, and I've, somebody else also told me that, um, you know, you could like after you get your med medicine, like your blood pressure medicine fulfilled or whatever, that you could always call them up and say, you know, I I just lost this or it just got dumped or whatever. Can you send me another one? I don't know. I've never had to do that or tried to do that. I don't know how valid that is to to say, oops, I, my dog ate my high blood pressure medicine. Can you send me another month? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I imagine that uh, it might work one time anyway. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've um we've talked about the physical mobility challenges of bugging out when you have people that might be in your party or you have mobility issues. Um there's one factor though, and I was I was surprised actually that this came up, but it makes a lot of sense and it, it really is kind of a mo mobility issue that's somewhat self-imposed, but I think it's very real for a lot of seniors, and that's evacuating when you have pets who are basically part of the family. I mean, I know a lot of seniors do have cats or dogs who are, you know, sometimes their main or even maybe their only companion that they have that they would never, ever, ever think to leave behind in a disaster. So yeah. they end up staying and, and maybe just plan on suffer the consequences because they're not going to leave Fido behind. And I'd hate to think of any senior as doomed just for having a pet. But right, right. when you do have pets, there there is that additional problem of evacuating, I mean, especially if they're not a willing partner. I mean, if you've got a cat, cats don't typically like to be on leashes, and, and some dogs might overpower their owner if they're on a leash, you know, and drag you halfway down the road if you tried bugging out with it. So what advice can you offer for someone who needs to evacuate but has an attachment to a family pet? Sure, sure. So um, just using our own example here, we, we've had, where we live in northern Arizona, we're in the mountains, lots of pine trees, and and uh, our biggest concern is with wildfires. Every June for about nine years, this is the first year in a row, or first year rather, 
that we haven't had to evacuate from our home in nine years. Hmm. So we've got it down to being out in about 20 minutes with, you know, the, the kids, the valuables, uh, laptops, you know, and our animals. We've got a lot of animals, cats, dogs, bunny. Stuff. So the way, the thing we've, we've done is we've got our, um, <clears throat> our little animal crates stowed right outside the back door and that's just in, before we go out the back door there's a little closet where we've got our bail out gear bug out of stuff so we can grab that quickly excuse me we can grab that quickly and then we got the crates right there now how do you get the animal in the crate if he's under the bed well what we've done is we have already kind of pre-baited our cat carriers with some catnip and we found that to be effective so our cats normally don't get catnip. When they do, they love it. But we've got some catnip already in there. So it's kind of pre-scented, pre-baited, so that if our cat's under the bed, and this has happened before, runs upstairs, under the bed, now what? We've got to get out of here. <laughs> um, I've got the cat carrier, and, and we've had this work most of the time. We've had this work really well, where the cat just smells that, and that's, that instinct just kicks in, and he, he goes right into the carrier. You might also want to just have some sardines or food or something like that because um, appealing to the different senses can help. So that's, that's uh, first of all, that's hilarious because I, mean, I think if if you have a cat and they don't know what catnip is, you know, give them the first dose for free. You know, just just kind of start <laughs> them off small and then just kind of build up their dependency. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we've done the thing with reaching under the bed or in the closet and you're you're getting scraped up and you know you need to get out of there and the cat's terrified and your heart's racing. So we've done it where we just have the the carriers pre-scented, pre-baited, and so on. And certainly you can do the same with a small dog. You've you've got a, a smaller dog and an animal crate um, to get them in there. Just already have that tucked away somewhere and have some really scented, juicy treats, whatever that is, jerky or something that is in a Ziploc and it's even maybe in front of your kit and you throw it in there and, and get your dog or cat in there so that you, you're not wasting precious time getting out of there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, those are some of the things we've done and, and found helpful. And I think it's just, it's going to depend on your situation. What kind of timeline are you looking at? We normally have to be out of here in 15 or 20 minutes because there's a giant mushroom cloud of smoke and flame half mile from our place because some Yahoo started a campfire, some arsonist, whatever it is, we don't have the time to uh, putz around trying to, to do all that, get all the animals. So we've kind of got a system down. And I, I recommend running through, you know, doing a dry run and and uh, with all this stuff. We always talk about the importance of dry fire practice with pistols and your firearms and, and so on, but fire-making skills, whatever it is. But um, bug out skills too. And understand the logistics look like and feel like for both you and them, so that you can get out quickly. Yeah, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, Tony, this is really great information. I really appreciate it. I mean, this is like I said, it's been a topic that we've been wanting to cover for a long, long time, and I know that our listeners and readers are really going to get a lot out of your advice. So, thank you. Now, well, thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate what you're doing and, and the word you're trying to get out on being more self-reliant here. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. Thanks. Now, listen, everyone, I, I've read Tony's books, and they're they're not only a simple read for anyone to understand, but they're also very methodical in helping you to plan your next steps for putting together your survival plan. And he has the training options to go right along with it. So make sure that you go and check out his website to see all that he's got to offer there. It's over at www.apathways.com. 
And until our next Modern Combat Survival broadcast, this is Jeff Anderson saying train hard, stay safe, prepare now. Modern Combat and Survival. Survival. We hope you've enjoyed the show. You can help us out by rating our podcast on iTunes and leaving a comment. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Modern Combat and Survival. And don't forget to claim your free subscription to Modern Combat and Survival magazine at www.moderncombatandsurvival.com. Lock and load. And we'll see you next time. This has been Modern Combat and Survival.